Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Our hosts are joined this week by well-known pastor, author, and theologian Tim Keller. The group will explain and unpack the transformationalist view and two kingdoms theology in light of Keller's recent book, Center Church. Stay tuned after to find out how to get a free book by Dr. Keller. Well, today we're strolling around the streets of Manhattan. I feel very uncomfortable because I'm a country boy, grew up in the west of England, Thomas Hardy country, don't like buildings, uh, not over keen on people, generally speaking. Uh, there seems to be a lot of buildings and people and around traffic. at the I'm a moment. West Virginia girl, I don't like traffic. But you do like guns, of course. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. Not so keen on guns in New York, I believe, <laughs> or back in the West Country of England, I have to say. Uh, but we're very privileged today to have joining us on the program uh, a guest that I'm guessing almost everybody listening to the podcast will have heard of. Uh, those who listen to the podcast regularly will know that Todd and I, we really uh, uh, niche market ourselves to what I would describe as uh, middle-aged, bitter, bald guys, uh, particularly the emphasis on the on the bitter and, and the bald. Today, we're breaking with that tradition. We have a, a bald guy joining us, uh, definitely a middle-aged bald guy, but uh, a bald guy who actually seems relatively happy right. uh, and indeed really quite pleasant whenever one, <laughs> one right. hears him speak or write. Uh, yes, we're very privileged today to have uh, the pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan, uh, the Reverend Dr. Tim Keller, joining us uh, to talk about uh, church and culture, and particularly uh, as connected to a recent book that he's written. It's uh, sitting on the table in front of me, uh, Center Church, uh, a study of gospel-centered ministry uh, in uh, the local church context. So it's great pleasure to have you with us, Tim. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad you still think that 63 is middle age. That's, that's a relief to me. Yeah, well, you're, you're getting up there, but we'll we'll grant you that just for the day. <laughs> Thank you. So, Todd, I know that you wanted to kick off. You've got some questions for mm-hmm. Tim. Uh, well, uh, Tim, one of the things that um, you have been speaking into a lot and, and with uh, passion and verve and um, been writing very effectively on is uh, the, the the church's relationship to culture um, from a a what we would call a transformationalist uh, framework or a transformationalist approach. For those that would be unfamiliar, Tim, with that term, would you just give a, a brief explanation of of what you're talking about um, when uh, when you talk about a transformationalist framework for for the church and for ministry? I'll give it to you, then I'll give you a personal note. Uh, I would yeah. say, to me, transformationists would include uh, Kuyperian, neo-Calvinists, mm-hmm. um, would actually include Reconstructionists, theonomists. Right. They would include certainly the religious right. And I would include, I'd throw Jim Wallace in there. Yeah. Too. I would put in the religious left. Um, they all believe that if you take Christian values and worldview out into the world, it'll transform and change the culture somehow. Um, and I would say um, the personal note is that I have ne- I do not identify with transformationists the way, uh, say, most two kingdom people would identify mm-hmm. with two kingdom. I mean, I, I, I'm, uh, I would say I, you know, anybody who became a Christian 
like I did in America in the late 60s, early 70s, gets influenced by Francis Schaeffer to some degree. And he was a kind of soft, Kuyperian sort of. And, you know, they talked about engagement. So I suppose that that I have that. I would be a, a very soft transformationist. But I can give you some examples of how I would be very apolitical in the pulpit, mm-hmm. in my my personal ministry. I uh, you know, I, w- I, I don't think anybody's perfectly balanced in any one way. So I would have to say I probably have a, a foot into the transformationist, probably. Mm-hmm. But but I'm pretty, you know, you're not talking to Nick Wolderstorff or, right. <laughs> or somebody like that here. So. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point. I think that's helpful because just as there is a, a, a spectrum on the two kingdom side, there really is a, a wide spectrum on the transformationist side, as you said, everybody from uh, the religious right over to the religious left, um, from a, from a Kuyperian approach to a, uh, a Jerry Falwell, um, and so it, it it really is a broad term. Mm-hmm. How would you how would you just encapsulate briefly your your approach um, to, to that? Well, I, here's the thing. I mean, I'm a pastor, so. Yeah. Uh, basically what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to talk with, I'm trying to pastor and instruct my, my members in how they operate outside the, the walls of the, of the church in their, especially in their vocations. And the, the, I think the simple fact is that there are some vocations that seem to be addressed pretty well by the more transformationist stuff and others that do not seem to be more well, um, addressed by a two kingdoms approach. So for example, um, the, uh, there's just no way if you're a news journalist, you're a Christian news journalist, what stories you choose, how you write them, even if you're trying tremendously hard to be objective only, Mm -hmm. there's just a million little ways in which your Christianity is going to affect the way in which you write those stories and even choose those stories. Same thing if you're an elementary school teacher, Mm -hmm. because your understanding of human nature may be very different than what the, uh, what your training is, or if you're a, a playwright, uh, that's where the Kuyperian types are right. It ultimately, there really isn't neutrality at that point. But then, what does it mean to be a Christian airline pilot? I mean, how do I apply my faith to being a Christian airline pilot? I'll tell you, land the plane mm-hmm. and make sure it can be used again. Yeah, That is uh, a great answer. I like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so the point is, you. I mean, I suppose you could pass tracks out to the <laughs> But that's strange. Especially if the plane secret, is not right? landing so, well. <laughs> yeah. So well, the point is, I think that that uh, the two kingdoms thing simply doesn't help uh, the playwright and the journalist who's because when you tell a joke, a two kingdoms joke is, oh, is there such a thing as Christian plumbing? Well, then the, the Christian journalist says, so there's absolutely nothing that my Christianity has to do with. Uh, I mean, my Christianity doesn't affect the way in which I'm doing my work. Right. Well, yeah, it does. Yeah. On the other hand, the, um, you, the, the, the Kuyperian approach that eventually gets you into, I guess, what you might call um, uh, the sort of silliness of saying there's a Christian way to you know, herd sheep and that yeah. sort of thing. Right. Uh, I, I've encountered a, a lot yeah. of that as a housewife, Tim. And so like, I, one thing that I thought was really um, helpful in your book, Center Church, is you discuss how all models of Christ and culture should use the biblical theology of creation, fall, and redemption, and restoration to control our thinking. But then, like you're saying, um, we can take that out of hand a little bit. So, like, as a housewife, 
I wonder about some how over practical that can get. Like there's much about this that's good, but has it gotten out of hand with things like um, I I give the example that I was invited to a, a Christian yoga class offered at the um, community college, and I asked, well, what what is Christian yoga? And it's the same poses except for you know instead of calling it um, downward dog you're going to call it the tent and read scripture a uh, passage of scripture and you know it's completely cheesy but then i get yeah. you know ask serious questions about you know should my children be on the regular little league shouldn't they be in upward sports which is a, a christian version of sports right so i mean i believe yeah. that there's this burden on housewives to really be able to navigate through these issues of christ and culture and so yes, what would you say about that? Those are two great examples because the Christian yoga, if anybody thinks they're doing Christian yoga, that's a lack of, you might say, that's where the Kuiper thing would be good. Come in and do a yeah. little worldview analysis here and, and say, there's no neutrality here. These are not neutral things you're doing. Right. Um, on the other hand, the idea that you, there has to be a Christian sports league. Which, I don't know, what does that mean, just open and close everything? Well, yeah, so they open and close in prayer, and, you know, it's about glorifying well, God and good sportsmanship, but then, you know, the parents still get mad, and the coaches still <laughs> cheat, and all that stuff still happens. So it's actually a worse witness yeah, but, for the church right. at that point. Well, there's something, listen, I'll give you an example that I'm not sure what it illustrates, but I think it shows that it's, this isn't real simple. I, I know a man who is a Christian who owns car dealership. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he dis- discovered, because he did some studies, that because his, his car salesmen have a fair amount of leeway, you know, as to what they actually sell the car for, they, they negotiate, they, you know, they horse trade. Um, he discovered that men always got better deals than women and that white people got better deals than black and uh, non, non-white people, that the uh, women don't negotiate as, uh, as hard. And he realized that basically uh, white men were getting getting their cars subsidized hmm. um, by uh, less good negotiators. And he decided, we're just going to say, no, you, there's just one. You, you, we, don't, we don't do that anymore. And he started, it definitely hurt his profits. Mm-hmm. And so some people came to him and said, so do you think that this will get us back? You know, in other words, is this still good business in the long run because we'll have good community relations or we can trumpet this as, oh, you know, we're into social justice? He says, no. He says, maybe, who knows, but it doesn't matter. I'm a Christian and I'm doing it because it's right. Now, what Charles, Charles Taylor would say here, I think, is here's a guy who has a, an open frame. He, he believes in transcendence and he says, in the long run, I should do the right thing because that might pay off eternally. But in the short run, mm-hmm. it may not. Well, I would think of that with with the softball illustration, too. If, you know, we're to be salt and we're in amongst with the unbelievers playing softball and there's a game for, let's say, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Yeah. Well, see, that's not, see, I hate to say that's not Christian. What I think is going on here, that is where the Kyperian thing doesn't capture that. Um, When you're honest, even though to your own hurt, even though it, may hurt your reputation, may hurt your career, may hurt your profit line. Mm-hmm. Charles Taylor says, if you have a closed frame, that means if you understand this world in strictly secular terms, then all happiness has to be material happiness. So there's you, everything you do in the, the bottom line is it's got to pay off for me here and now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's necessarily a Christian worldview, what that right. guy did. 
it was just basically that he was he he doesn't he's not a secularist. And so I do think that even though is there a Christian way to run a car dealership? No. But because he has an open frame instead of a closed frame, his 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 you might say his worldview to some degree does affect the way in which he's doing things, because his bottom line isn't necessarily material happiness. And uh, I, that's the reason why I find as a pastor, not as a theorist, because I'm not really <laughs> that I I have had to borrow from the various approaches to Christ and culture that Niebuhr lays out, you know, that sort of thing. I've, I've had to borrow a bit. And I, my friend Don Carson has a book called Christ and Culture Revisited, where he basically says, outside of the second Niebuhrian model, the Christ of culture, he says all of all of the other approaches that, that Niebuhr brings out have a certain amount of biblical, um, there's some biblical background to it that, it that makes sense. So I've been actually, though, I, I, I know I'm, I'm tarred, you might say, as a transformist. <laughs> I consider myself a little bit more of a, a mutt. Well, that's a good point because, and, and I asked David Van Drunen this too when we interviewed him, um, we're kind of talking about the, the transformationalist and the two kingdoms views on MOS. Um, what do you think is the best contribution of the two kingdoms model that has helped you to develop your own mutt view? <laughs> well, lots, even though you, you see, you're showing your age, Amy. When I, when I was being formed in the 60s and 70s, there, there was no two kingdom model except. <laughs> I like showing my age. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yes, we come I mean, out so of that I, really bad. Like, <laughs> what I think the two kingdoms model is doing now uh-huh. is it, it is a re- two kingdoms is pushing back rightly on the transformationist narratives, which give the impression, even if they don't actually say this or hold it, but they give the impression the real work of the kingdom is out there. Huh. It's not churchly. Right. They tend to see the dramatic front line out there in the culture. That's where the big stuff is happening. And the two kingdom rightly says that the mission of the church is to minister the word and the sacraments and to make disciples. That is the mission of the institutional church. The church gathered under its officers. And I don't, I think that could easily get lost if it wasn't for some people that are waving that banner. So. Mm-hmm. Tim, if I could pick up on something you said uh, a little while ago, but I think you mentioned you were, you're essentially apolitical. Maybe you said you're apolitical in the pulpit or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering in, in the current context, when we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, uh, a major shift uh, in, in the political world from economic issues to to identity issues for want of a better word uh, uh, on one level I think it's it's easy to make the case as, as Christians that hey debates about tax rates and tax philosophy that's that's a real gray area when it comes to working right. out what does the what does scripture say to 20% income tax versus 22% income tax something like that mm-hmm. but when we're we're really dealing in in the current climate with Abortion, mm-hmm. uh, same-sex marriage, and and even you know, my sons at a my sons at a local university here, uh, and the the identity politics is way beyond same-sex marriage, and I'm sure you're well aware of that with the kind sure. of people that you you encounter every day in Manhattan. Um, it looks to me as if it's going to be increasingly difficult to be apolitical in the pulpit, whether you're radical, two kingdoms, transformationist, whatever. The biblical yeah. text throws up all kinds of issues that the world around doesn't want to hear about. Right. Do you have any advice on how to, to <laughs> navigate that as a pastor? Well, first, you're right. See, if, if the culture says that, um, that it's hateful, 
and you're a bad citizen if you believe in the Trinity. You know, what if you found a culture that said, if you believe in the Trinity, you're a bad citizen? And then suddenly taking part of what we would <laughs> call the core, our, our core beliefs and making it political. So once they make it political, then, of course, I, I have to preach on the Trinity. So now I'm being political. So I would say in the past, when you had more of a Christendom kind of situation, uh, where you had more of a shared consensus of, uh, you know, roughly biblical ideas of the image of God and sex and gender and all that, then, yes, to be apolitical meant that you don't say that um, uh, high tax rates is the Christian way or low tax rates. You just don't do that. And, Carl, as you know, the Christian left and the Christian right, they tend to do that. Yeah, yeah. They actually say small government or, or you know, high tax rate, that, that's what's, that's just. And I, that's where I've never gone mm-hmm. over the years. But, of course, when they start coming in, and we might say when the culture comes in and says these things that church, Christians always believe makes you a bad citizen, then that automatically makes it political and we're going to have to go there. And I didn't really answer your question, your second part of your question. I was just affirming the first part. Sure, sure. That uh, you're absolutely right that uh, even if you are a two kingdoms person that says, you know, I'm not going to talk about uh, politics. Well, if they define things that we have always taught as politics, then whoops, hmm. now I'm political. There we go. Mm-hmm. But how do you do that? Well, in the book, I have a, I have a listen, the, this would be probably worth another, another entire subject because we're talking about culture. Mm-hmm. I, well, I do believe in that there is such a thing as contextualization. I think there's a, there's a, I think Paul's doing it in the, in the book of Acts. If you read even very conservative uh, commentators like David Peterson on that, he sees it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and basically what you do is you find something in the culture, uh, for example, that you at least say, look, do you believe that? And the, the people around you say, yes. And say, okay, well, then why not believe this? Mm-hmm. And then you bring in, um, say, the more, the more un, um, unpopular biblical uh, uh, teaching. So, for example, C.S. Lewis does it when he says, you want a loving God? Okay, think about this. There's a there's a great place where he says you a loving God would be a God who loves the way an artist loves his work or loves the way a father loves his child. If you're loving, you're going to be angry at, at, at anything that threatens it. So he makes a, he starts by saying, um, you know, he, instead of just saying, look, you don't believe in a holy judging God. Well, I do, and you're right, you're wrong, and I'm right. I mean, that's just bang. But what he does is he like all good persuasive people, he says, oh, you believe that? Okay, well, if you believe that, you want a loving God? Sure. But think about the implications of that. A loving God would have to get angry. He'd have to be willing to judge that which harms his creation and that sort of thing. You know, that that which dishonors his own glory and all that. So I do think, I do think, yeah, I do think there's a way. Yeah, that reminds me of the Francis Schaeffer taking the roof off method a little bit. Yeah kind of pushing yeah, people so, like with what they say and then and taking that to its full conclusion there. Well, if you believe in a loving God, then. Right. So on something like, like homosexuality, the, the problem, of course, is that people are so furious right now that there's virtually nothing you can say, but, but that will not sim- simply bring abuse and fury at you. But there are ways of, there certainly are still better ways of talking about it and less, uh, you know, just less inflammatory ways and slightly more disarming ways. But almost everything is at right now pretty much impossible to uh, 
to say without getting without getting your head handed to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Tim, I think you make a really valuable point um, about the fact that uh, sometimes the the what 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 a particular society, what a particular culture is doing, um, gives us no choice as a church to address quote unquote a political issue. We, we it was not originally a political issue, but for for certain reasons, certain things can become a. Political, mm-hmm. region, uh, political issue in, in, in the culture around us. Being in, in Manhattan, um, uh, of course, I'm sure you're well aware of, of figures that have come out in the last couple of years about uh, some 80% of African-American babies that are conceived are, are aborted, which is just a breathtaking um, statistic. And abortion being such a volatile issue in so many ways considered by so many to be a political issue. Mm-hmm. How do you, in a, in a ch- at a church in Manhattan, a- address that reality and help people see that this is, to, to address this is not a compromise right. on, on not being partisan from the pulpit, yeah. but just simply being biblical? How do you do that? How do you help your people navigate that? Well, when we have when I have preached on abortion, I've, there's there has been sometimes some um, you know pushback and unhappiness and that sort of thing. But first, first of all, I, I would say that it's not at the same it, that abortion is not an issue like homosexuality right now because actually younger people, the millennials, etc., younger people are more wary about abortion. They're right. not they're not as favorable to That's it. That's true. Um, and as as my generation was, mm-hmm. and they see you know, p- part of it is the frankly it's the it's the wonderful providence and common grace of ultrasound. Right. That's just that's a kind of a natural law argument for most people now. That really means that that if I talk about abortion being wrong, uh, I do not get my head handed to me. Right. Uh, and so that's, I'm not. A, I'm not a, yeah, it's 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 not there. Frankly, it's not that, at all. Where what same sex marriage and homosexuality. Right. Yeah, so that might be actually in your because I, I think you make a very valid point, and and all the studies have pointed out that uh, the millennial generation is more pro life uh, than their parents were. Right. My only the only natural law help that might come with same sex marriage would be what I call uh, when most people come after me on this. I say, I say, well, we're going to have a wisdom contest now. Hmm. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, look, it's going to be thirty or forty years um, before we really find out. Uh, whether or not same-sex marriage gives the you know as good outcomes for children and and they're as durable and all that and and there'll be people out, out there ch- testing all this and for a number of years there'll be tremendous political pressure on people not to be objective but eventually probably the truth will come out and I don't know I have I'm not sure that um, same-sex marriage will necessarily show up as being basically not as healthy mm-hmm. uh, in a kind of way, way that you could show empirically. It may happen, it may not happen. If it is, if, it, if that does happen, it would be a little bit like the sonogram. But I'm not really sure what God's will is on that. But I usually say to people, look, let, let those of us who believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman, you know, don't attack us. Let us have our moral communities, and we'll have a wisdom contest. We'll see you in 30 or 40 years and see whether— the outcomes for children is good. Huh. So that's, that's what I usually yeah, say. That's a, that's um, that leads to, like, if you're looking at it from a, a transformationalist perspective, it seems like as hard as, you know, we've all been trying, no matter really what our view of Christ and culture is, yeah. 
Christians really yeah. don't seem to be making much of a redemptive, uh, positive impl- influence to the culture in this area of marriage, and just makes me wonder, you know, are we doing it you know, wrong? No, maybe not. Um, that's a big subject, and I'm looking at the time. <laughs> I, 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 listen, I talk, I talk. There's, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a maybe a practical and a more theoretical answer. The theoretical answer is there may be ways for us to, to do a better job I mean, uh, of actually doing our message. But I'm not sure in our this climate any re- reasonable, eloquent statement will be won't be just shouted down. Mm-hmm. I actually worked on it myself, as, and I won't even go into it right now because I'm not sure the way in which I express it is the best. But practically speaking, you know, James Hunter, who's uh, yep. someone you all probably know about, James will say that culture change happens not through great ideas or big heroes, heroic figures, but he would say, using sociological terms, he would say the, uh, the culture, uh, the main culture changing actors are dense networks that coalesce around a very, very focused message or goal um, that both defies and yet resonates with the culture. Mm. Right there, three things. Dense networks, really, really close overlapping networks of friends and people who are working very hard. They coalesce around one thing that's really a major purpose, you know, like the abolition of the slave trade or something like that, or same-sex marriage. And they have a message that resonates because it, it's a civil rights language and yet defies the, the status quo. And uh, at this point, the, you might, the people who have been working for same-sex marriage and gay rights have far more dense networks. Hmm. Yeah. They have, they have a, a big, hairy, obvious goal, and they have a message that uh, unfortunately resonates with the individualist, expressive individualism or culture. And as a result, they've, uh, they're, they're cleaning our clock, mm-hmm. as it were, even though the number of people who probably have a traditional view of marriage are far greater. Right. Uh, we just aren't coalesced into those, those dense networks. And I, I don't know whether we can. I mean, I don't believe that culture change is something that you can really manage in a command and control way from some control center. I mean, God has mm-hmm. to sort of do it. There are times in which Christians have come together and made some changes to culture. But um, right now, I don't know what we can do other than to try, I do think mainly to maintain our ourselves as a wisdom, you know, a wisdom contest counter contrast community. Hmm. That's the main thing we're going to have to do. We're going to have a lot of attrition if we're not yeah. really good at instructing our own people. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, well, obviously, we've been scratching the surface of some big and important issues um, for uh, for the church and uh, Tim Keller, you're you're helping us think through those things well, and uh, we really appreciate that. We appreciate you being on here. We appreciate the fact that you keep writing and uh, and preaching, and uh, blessings to you on uh, on your ministry. And uh, thanks for uh, taking a little bit of time out to uh, spend with us on Mortification of Spin. We really appreciate it. That's kind of you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, well, press on. And for those of you joining us today, uh, thank you for the time you've been able to spend with us. Uh, It's Mortification of Spin, casual conversation about things that count. We've been blessed today to spend some time with uh, Tim Keller, and uh, we hope to uh, talk to you all again very soon. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. Vagabond shoes. 
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold to the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. We have a few copies of Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, we'd like to give away to our listeners. Head over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, to enter for a chance to win one of these books. We've talked about church discipline and reasons why a pastor would be deposed, but what should the church do when that pastor has repented of his sin? Join us next week as the gang talks about the process of re-entry for a repentant pastor. We hear things like, well, they, you know, they've asked for forgiveness and now we need to accept them back in and forgive them. But I think we're misunderstanding how to love. We see there that, that one's reputation matters. You've got to show that you can serve the Lord in a humble capacity before we will contemplate allowing you back into any position. That's next week on Mortification of Spin. A casual conversation about things that count. We'll talk to you then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm I'm in the midst of um, launching a uh, a gospel-centered fitness conference. Um, yes. You know, what do you think about looking that? At, looking at yoga through the Jesus lens. Give me a like break, that. man. <laughs> I know. Wasn't that Where great? Was this fit pray conference. Yeah, <laughs> I've got to write something about this. I'm not sure what, but I've got to write something about this. this <laughs> I, awesome. I think you want to. Maybe I, I should have a to. nunchuck conference. Maybe I've been going about this all wrong. Yeah, yeah. What is the, <laughs> you know, the biblical body fat percentage? No, I'm well, thinking um, 19. Gospel-centered body fat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to put some numbers on this. Isn't what exactly it is gospel-centered body fat? You know, what's the what's the figures on this? I'm telling you, it's yeah. 19%. <laughs>